Section 4. Leveling Up On the Nose The world is full of obvious things, which nobody by any chance ever observes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle Too often beginner improvisers start a scene with the suggestion carnival, with a line along the lines of, Oh boy, here we are at the carnival. Of course, it's generally new improvisers who work in this way, but even experienced improvisers can end up doing variations of this. If the suggestion is carnival, they may end up with an initiation like, The carnival rules! Let's go on the bumper cars! Now, it's not wrong. It just looks and feels like ticking a box. And theatrically speaking, it's a little on the nose. On the nose is a term often used for script writing when the dialogue deals too much with things the characters would be unlikely to comment on. This is footnote three. On the nose could also be characters speaking something that is actually subtext, the emotion underneath their dialogue. Like a husband telling his wife, you cheating on me really damaged my sense of manhood. Or a middle schooler saying, let's get back at the bully and score a victory for the underdog. It's just, it's on, it's on the nose. That's, that's what we call it. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, like on the nose would be something like being at the carnival and saying, oh boy, here we are at the carnival. Now, I can't count the number of factory scenes I've witnessed where the opening line of dialogue is a variation on, here we are at a factory. If you're really working at a factory, you would never say anything like that. A line like that sacrifices the reality of the scene in order to satisfy a felt need that isn't real. There's no benefit to this. You wouldn't expect an office worker to lean back in his chair and comment to his colleague, Hey, Marv, this sure is an office job. And then have his partner agree, Yes, we are at work. It sounds dumb, and it's unrealistic, and it offers nothing other than reinforcing something that's already been established. Plus, it doesn't inspire the players. The characters are doing something weird and phony for no good reason, and the audience is struggling to find something in the scene worth investing in. Even though the players think they're creating a scene, they're just digging themselves a hole. Only by accepting the reality without comment can the players start to get a scene going. Think about your everyday life. When you're on the bus or driving your car, what do you think about or talk about with your friends? If you don't walk into a Starbucks and say, Here I am at Starbucks, what do you say? Those things that you actually say and do in those circumstances or would say and do if you were on a pirate ship or in a parking garage or on a distant moon, that's what gives you a starting point. Someone at the carnival may very well say, let's go shoot water in a clown's mouth, or, oh boy, uh, this is so much cotton candy, or just look over and say, God, this is so romantic. They may not comment on the carnival at all for a while, and then they'll weave it into the scene later, or not. The office workers may lament the new coffee beans in the break room coffee machine or comment on a new coworker, or talk about an upcoming deadline, but they probably wouldn't talk about the fact that they're at work. And being less on the nose gives players the ability to open up into fruitful scenes, relationships, and directions. And do it right away without plodding through weird, distracting details. In the carnival example, it's not the carnival itself that's interesting. It's how the estranged father and his eight-year-old son navigate the son's motion sickness, or how the high school sweethearts address the fact that they're about to go to different colleges, or how the carnies just simply watch the rubes go by and reflect on their own lack of retirement savings or even a fixed address. The carnival isn't the point. It's just the context, the launching pad, 
How these specific characters navigate this day in this world is what matters. Nadine Antler from Hamburg calls the main action of the scene the cake. And an improv scene, she says, is never about the cake. The dynamic of the scene is about the characters. For example, in a scene about a woman visiting a mechanic to get her car fixed, the fixing of the car is the cake. Focus on that action and your scene will feel stilted and lack drama. But if you delve into the interpersonal and the feelings each character has about the other and the situation, suddenly you've got shed loads of dramatic possibilities. Changing the game. The essence of the beautiful is unity in variety. So says Felix Mendelssohn. A note I frequently give improvisers of all levels is this. Have variety. Mix it up. This variety applies to every aspect of what you do. Characters, how you start your scenes, the games you play in your short form set, the length of your scenes, the staging of scenes. But most importantly, the energy. There's a big difference between having a house style and being repetitive or samey. Audiences tire of seeing the same thing over and over again. Even very fast-paced, funny shows need variation. Different characters, slower reveals, musical interludes, fast scenes followed by slower, more patient scenes. As a parallel, think of Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen's operatic prog rock epic. Think of the internal changes that make that song so memorable. Think of the beginning line. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Then think about the crazy guitar solo before it gets into the plinky scaramouche, scaramouche, or the falsetto, Galileo, Galileo. The sweeping chorus who reflect the lyrics back, and that bitchin' guitar part. It has all those big style changes and variations, yet it all fits together as a single song, a cohesive artistic unit. Now, of course, Bohemian Rhapsody lies at the extreme end of the style shift spectrum, but almost any song you can think of contains plenty of variation. Those changes are part of what draws us into it. The chord progressions, the key changes, the bridge, intros, outros, lyrical themes, etc. Now think of an album you like. The sound of the band doesn't change, but the songs do. They have different tempos, different themes, but they all fit into one overarching recognizable style. A scene is like a song, and a show is like an album. I'll say it again. A scene is like a song, and a show is like an album. During a show, there should be some variations within your scenes. And from scene to scene, there can be some similarity in tone and style, not to mention characters and subject matter, but there should also be differences. There's an improv tendency to follow one scene with another of a similar energy or content. And that's only logical. If you're paying close attention to a scene, and of course you are, you might come out to start the next scene with a similar energy to or an idea from the previous scene. This is subconscious. And much of learning to take it easy is empowering our subconscious to do the work. But that doesn't mean you should be on autopilot. A good improviser finds different ways to both go with the flow and put their paddle in to steer a show in different directions. If a high-energy, big-group musical scene finishes to a rapturous applause, you're going to have a hard time matching or topping that energy. But if you came on slowly and in silence, sat down cross-legged on the floor, and then <sighs> just sighed loudly, the energy is totally changed. What's going to happen in the scene? I don't know. 
but I do know I'm not comparing it to the musical scene that came before. And vice versa, if there's a slow, patient, grounded relationship scene, you may feel inclined to come on and match that energy. But a chef isn't going to follow a delicate creamed vegetable soup with a main course of delicate creamed veggies. Nope. She's trying to create a different texture and taste that will complement what came before, not imitate it. You should do likewise. To create a complete experience, it's vital you pull a few different tricks out of your bag. Album-wise, you would want to include a variety of songs that all fit a certain artistic ideal, but not make just a bunch of stuff that sounds the same. Now, seeking this variety may feel risky, but humans are predisposed to crave variety. We may have a favorite food, but that doesn't mean we want to eat that food all the time. And we love our favorite band, but that's not the only music we listen to. It's the same with improv. We want variety. This isn't just for within shows. It also goes for across shows as well. You don't want to play the same character each time you step onto the stage or have your troupe rely on the same set list or form each time you perform. You need to give yourself the space to play in new ways, even as you develop a, consist a consistent voice as a player and as a group. This diversity, though it may seem antithetical to the take-it-easy approach, is actually a perfectly natural response to our innate human desire for some variety in our lives. For short form, that means the games you play should use different mechanics and flex a variety of muscles between scenic, musical, panel, story, genre, and group games. Part of this is, of course, down to whoever is designing the set list, but a big part of that responsibility still rests with the players. And, if you're doing long form, be aware of the energy in your scenes and how best to support the overall show by slipping in a different vibe via maybe a faster pace or a bigger character, a shorter scene, a tender moment, when required. You're creating an album, so you'll need to change things up now and then. Plus, in trying new things, taking risks, and playing with structure, you're creating new patterns and rhythms, so you're continuing the artistic evolution of you and your group. So be true to yourself, your style, and your group, but don't get caught in a rut. Too many toys. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, says Stephen Covey. When we were kids, if we were lucky, we had lots of toys. And we used to love playing with them because we're kids. And now that I have a daughter, I notice something similar. She loves getting new toys, and she's been quite spoiled by family and friends on this front, but she can only really play with one at a time. Sure, you could make your G.I. Joes go to Barbie's Dream Castle or stuff your Legos into your Millennium Falcon, but still, you can't do that and play with the Rubik's Cube and the Hula Hoop. I feel like these toy references are dating me, but I grew up in the 80s. That's just a fact. Anyway, this too-many-toys idea lines up exactly with improv. When we yes-and too much, we end up with an unwieldy situation and confused players. Two characters having lunch at a golf course clubhouse might start chatting about one husband's suspected cheating, the other's recent promotion, their high school rivalry, a golf tournament that's happening today, the overcooked steak, and so forth. It's not that any of these aren't good. They all have story potential. But that's precisely the problem. Which one is the story? We may never know. And as soon as one becomes the focus of the scene, all the other elements get abandoned. This byproduct is also unsatisfying. It works similarly with characters. If you try to detail a character too richly, 
an opera-loving elderly tennis enthusiast with an English accent who loves sushi and used to be a property lawyer who never learned how to drive, for example, you may find it's tough to give all of those elements the attention they deserve, like a child who can't choose between a plastic sword and a bag of marbles. But if you and your partner agree and play with that toy together and see what results from focusing on that, you're on the road to fun time. Character-wise, that might look like choosing just one or two attributes to play, and scene-wise, that means going with what inspires you first rather than generating more material than you can possibly use. Remember, you only need one toy at a time. Deep into the details. Caress the detail, the divine detail, says Vladimir Nabokov. Treated with care, an offhand, almost neutral opening line such as, you look nice today, can be turned into a juicy gateway to a rich situation. By being a little more patient and adding some detail, you can create some more energy and information for your partner to work with. 11 quick options to turn that neutral offer into a detailed one. I just came up with these, you know, kind of on the spot. You look nice today. That red dress really looks great with that lipstick. You look nice today. They'd be fools not to hire you. You look nice today. Blue is really your color. You look nice today. I guess you slept all right. You look nice today. Those glasses really suit you. You look nice today. You look nice today. But a court date isn't just about a sharp suit. You look nice today. I love what you've done with your hair. You look nice today, with air quotes around the word nice. You look nice today. If you'd asked me out looking like this, <laughs> I'd have said yes for sure. You, oh, wow. Uh, you look, um, God, you look nice today. See, by giving our offers a little more definition, we remove the need for them to think of anything new or for our scene partner to do anything other than just be affected by the line we've given them and unpack it. They only need to take the first association they have based on their life experience, whatever else has happened in the show up until this point. I mean, maybe they're dressed up for an award ceremony or have a second date this evening or are doing their very first drag show or dot, 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 whatever that is. And that, combined with the richly detailed opening line, gives us a whole bunch more information about the context, the characters, and where this scene might be going. Compare that world of opportunity with the amount of work they would need to do off the back of you look nice today. It's worlds apart. And it's not just this example. All too often a quick, instinctive line would benefit from being pushed just a little bit further. Adding a bit more detail requires paying more attention to everything we and our partners do, but the rewards are so worth it. I mean, details are challenging. Increasing our attention to every moment takes some getting used to, but it pays immediate dividends. It's impossible to be disengaged when enriching your scene with important details and making each moment matter. There are only things to be gained. One exercise I created, which I share in the exercise section of the book, is called The Roadshow. It involves partners collaboratively describing an imaginary object. What happens when two people are completely focused on finding details 
is that all elements of a scene present themselves without any effort actually needing to be expended on that. Objects become real, relationship, history, and story are all established as a byproduct, even though I've expressly set up the exercise as only being about creating the object. For details, the lesson is pay attention to them because the story lies in the details. And if you gloss over them, you risk leaving the story and the scene covered up. Twist. Don't break. In the theater, the audience wants to be surprised, but by things that they expect. Tristan Bernard said that. Audiences love to be surprised. That's how comedy works. The punchline is a surprise. Stories work this way as well. A plot twist creates more intrigue and draws a viewer or reader deeper into the story. A predictable or formulaic story or telegraphed punchline robs the audience of that aha moment and creates unsatisfactory entertainment. And I absolutely do not suggest that you aim for anything less than satisfactory entertainment. In fact, you should probably aim even higher than just satisfactory. But in the desire to surprise the audience and our scene partners, in a rush to be seen as inventive or clever, we can lose sight of a very important, though less well-known fact. Audiences love to be surprised, yes, but just as much they love to be unsurprised. While a good plot twist or witty bon mot can thrill and delight an audience, so can stating the obvious or doing the expected. Too many plot twists or a succession of non sequiturs throws an audience off. In an attempt to be witty or surprising, players can end up saying and doing nonsensical things. Sometimes the things we think will have the audience marvel at our cleverness and instead has them rolling their eyes at our transparent neediness. Take this example I just made up. Captain, Captain, we need your help with this. Ah, finally my black belt in ancient kung fu will come in handy. Okay, sure, it's unexpected. It also offers a direction for the scene to go and even adds depth to the character. But that player is not taking it easy, not at all. And the scene is going to be more work for players in the audience as a result. I'm not saying that direction couldn't work, but why make it more difficult just for the sake of the unexpected? Why not just find out what help is needed or draw on your captain's training, for example? Following the expected, what has been laid out offers less resistance and quite possibly more rewards. Whether in individual lines or trying to make sense of a bunch of disparate threads in a long-form set, we can sometimes try to do too much work to bring them together. Or if they fit too neatly together already, we may try and spread them out, throw in some red herrings, abandon an already established pattern, or otherwise try to mess with what's been created. It's fun to blow things up and subvert expectations, to play against the direction and see what comes up, sometimes, but not all the time. Plus, that's not necessarily better than just working with what's in front of you. When you take it easy, you roll with what comes. And in the right hands, that simplicity can be a powerful tool. Now, I've seen funny and surprising lines and moves meet audience indifference. And I've seen obvious lines met with applause breaks. Now, let's take a scene between two men at a bar at closing time. One player confesses to a murder. 
the other player, recognizing this as a chance to also make a surprising revelation and perhaps follow upon the pattern, says that he once saw aliens. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? I mean, I think it kind of sounds terrible. However, rewind that same scene. Have the first player reveal they murdered someone and have the second player <laughs> laugh awkwardly and make excuses to get out of that bar as fast as possible. The first player quietly gets up and follows them out into the night. Now, of those two scenes, which is more surprising? The first. But which makes for a more interesting scenario? The second, obviously. And that's not in spite of being simple, but because it's simple. It goes from A to B. The story builds on what's come before. There's no major thinking, there's no curveballs. An expectation is set up and then delivered upon. That's all you need to do. Remember that if you're trying to think up clever things, you may be missing out on doing the one thing that everyone is actually excited about. All of that work for nothing. Expectations set up and then abandoned. Now, certainly not everyone agrees, and this advice doesn't apply in all cases. I mean, of course, curveballs and tangents have their place. But remember that trying to make the story as strange and surprising as possible can result in throwing in one too many kinks, and then the hose doesn't work anymore. Practice your practice. Practice an opportunity. Very soon teach the language of art, says William Blake. While living in London, there was a stretch of years during which I didn't take any improv workshops. I'd been doing improv for a decade and a half at that point, and I knew my way around pretty well. It was also just before the explosion of improv activity in London, and I wasn't teaching either, just performing a few times a month. I began to notice that the risk, discovery, and joy began to seep out of my onstage work. My performances suffered from what I now recognize as stagnation. It's not that performances became joyless, but I found myself enjoying them and the idea of improv less. Fortunately, I managed to get back on track. All it took was to get back to teaching and taking workshops. The workshop space is an important part of any practice. It's where we're encouraged to make mistakes, work with new ideas, and play with new people. Of course, elements introduced in the workshop, be they in an approach to character or story, genre, scene mechanics, or anything else, may not make it into the next show you do, but they shift your boundaries, reinforce or challenge what you already know, and influence your process. And once they're part of your process, they will eventually find their way into your product. Even if you reject the ideas from the workshop, you've learned something more about how you approach the work. For example, maybe iambic pentameter from an afternoon's improvised Shakespeare workshop won't become part of your show that night, but if you do play a Shakespeare scene, you will be able to put some of your learning into action. In addition, and this is unavoidable, you'll have a heightened awareness of the rhythms of language. Maybe your turns of phrase will become more considered, more poetic, like morning sun glistening on a dewy rose blossom, or something like that. And that awareness of language will also have effects beyond your stage self, because the practice of anything has positive ripples beyond their intended use. It's impossible to stagnate when we're constantly being challenged. And don't worry, I have an appropriate example. Towards the end of my period of improv listlessness, 
I began training in London at Master Chang's Hapkido Academy, earning my green belt before I moved to Amsterdam. What Hapkido instilled in me, besides discipline, flexibility, and a ferocious neck attack, was a renewed love for practice and study. I loved the trainings, going twice a week almost without fail until we moved. Through that practice, I rediscovered the joy of learning. And without making a conscious choice, I stopped neglecting my improv and I started studying and teaching more. And just as my martial arts training led to my choice to reinvest in my improv, so the content of an improv workshop will influence not just your performances, it will also seep into your real life. The process also works the other way. If you spend your outside of improv time being lazy or bitter or locked in a negative mindset, that will inescapably seep into your performances. Even worse, it will probably affect the dynamics of your group. Even if you don't do anything negative and you just stick with your regular life, normal habits and routines, regular rehearsals with your group, the buzz will lessen and things will eventually stagnate. The good news is that if you spend even a little bit of your offstage life trying new things that scare you and challenging yourself and expressing dedication to what's important in your life, that will have a positive effect on your performances. You'll also enjoy your life more because you'll be doing cool things and meeting interesting people. It radiates outward to improve the rest of your life, just as it does when you're on stage to improve your performances. End of chapter.